I'm not voting in this election. This year is the the first year where I just I don't I don't feel represented or heard. I'm not voting because no one has earned it. No one has earned my vote. If I can't have a candidate that I feel is going to actually represent me, then why should I vote? If there was a candidate that spoke to my concerns, spoke to my interests, shared my politics, and maybe I would consider voting. I understand that there is power and there is necessity in voting. I think not voting and not participating sends more of a message to leaders that we're not happy. We're not happy with, with what's going on. This past year, there it's been a really, really volatile year. A lot of young people like myself who are really, really dissatisfied and are realizing that like voting is not the only way to make our voices heard. If we want to actually organize ourselves, like we, we shouldn't see electoralism as our only option. Welcome to episode nine of the Applied Political Philosophy podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. I can conceive of a national destiny which meets the responsibilities of today and measures up to the possibilities of tomorrow. Citizens of America expect more. They deserve and they want more. Applied Political Philosophy. Up to this point in the show, we've considered a lot of different political reforms and heard proposals for new and innovative approaches to fixing what's wrong with America's democratic system. One of the biggest deficiencies in American democracy, particularly compared to other major democratic countries, is low voter turnout rates. While it's difficult to isolate what's contributing to this problem, one of the factors is certainly efficacy, the sense by some voters that their vote doesn't really matter. In presidential elections, it's widely known that a large number of states are safe for one party or the other. And in those states, people whose party preference runs the other direction face a strong disincentive to vote, since their vote is certainly not going to swing the election to the other direction. While less widely noticed by the public, the same thing goes for many congressional and state legislative races as well. Even without gerrymandering, there's usually a supermajority of seats that aren't competitive between the two major parties, and this can definitely put a downward pressure on voter turnout among those who know their preferred candidate is going to lose badly no matter what. A lack of competitiveness and a voter's sense of the efficacy of their vote are certainly connected. And while there are definitely some people who vote even when they know their preferred candidate is going to lose, the absence of meaningful competitiveness undoubtedly has a negative impact on voter turnout rates. One of the political reforms that's often recommended to address both efficacy and competitiveness is the use of proportional representation rather than a district-based winner-take-all system of elections, which is familiar in the United States. Proportional representation, often called simply PR, is the subject of this show today. We'll begin with an interview about the basics of the PR system. Dr. Miller, from what I understand, proportional representation is fairly unfamiliar to most Americans. Can you briefly explain how a system of proportional representation works? Yes, unfamiliar to most Americans. What is familiar to us is the district-based winner-take-all system, where a political territory is divided into districts, and each district gets one representative, and the people who live in that district vote for their representative. The person who gets the most votes gets to be that representative. In a proportional representation system, a political territory isn't divided into districts. It is an at-large form of voting, which means that the entire political territory, if if we're talking about a state like the state of Oregon, it would be all of the voters in Oregon would be voting in the same pool of votes. Another difference is that when you're voting in a district-based system, you're voting for a candidate, and any number of candidates can run for the seat. It could be one, two, five However many people actually run, those are the people listed on the ballot. In a system of proportional representation, what voters are choosing among are parties rather than individual candidates. 
And essentially what they're choosing is they're choosing a party slate. Uh, you see the name of a party on your ballot, but the party itself represents a slate, which is a list of its candidates in order of sort of priority. So, for example, if there are 100 seats available in the legislature, then a party will list, probably, you know, up to 100 names. Let's say that a party gets 10% of the vote. It will get 10% of the seats. So in a 100-seat legislature, that would be 10 seats. The top 10 names on the party slate list would get those seats. And then the person who was in the 11th and 12th position wouldn't get the seat. If that party had won 11 or 12% of the vote instead of 10, then whoever was in position number 11 and 12 would get it. What's happening in a system of proportional representation, the votes for the entire political territory are going into the same pool. And rather than having winners, which represent just the most votes, votes are calculated for the percentage of the total and seats in the legislature are allocated according to that percentage. Now, often there is also a threshold, a minimum percentage that a party has to get in order to get any seats. And that is set quite differently in different systems. I mean, some systems have it as low as 4%. Some systems have it as high as 15%. This system is accompanied by a minimum percentage that you have to get. And that prevents very tiny minority parties from getting representation in the legislature. Does that, uh, does that make sense how that works? Yes, it does. Thank you. Uh, what would you say are the main advantages to a PR system? Well, you know, I think the biggest advantage is that everybody is essentially voting for something instead of potentially for but mostly against. One of the biggest complaints in the district-based system of voters is that they're choosing the lesser of two evils. You know, in a two-party system, you're likely to have just two choices and maybe you don't like either one of them. So you're going to be put in a position of voting against the one you like least. And if you are on the losing side, you get nothing. In the system of PR, not only do you get to vote for something, you're voting for a party, that party is going to get a slice of political power that is proportionate to the percentage of people who actually chose it, as opposed to a lot of voters voting for somebody that's going to end up being the loser. I call this the loser problem, which is part of the district-based winner-take-all system. Let's say that there are three candidates and the winning candidate wins with 42% of the vote. Well, 58% of the people in that district voted for somebody else. Those people are losers. They get zero share of political power. Now, of course, you know, there's winners and losers all over life. And so the loser problem isn't that bad unless the political demographics of your district are such that you're a perennial loser. That is that you support a party or a type of candidate that never wins. You're always in the minority. You will never get a representative who uh, represents your views. And so you never get a slice of political power or representation. In the PR system, that problem doesn't exist. Unless you're a supporter of a, of a tiny party, one of those that doesn't reach the threshold, you're going to get somebody in the legislature who represents your viewpoint. So the loser problem doesn't exist. I would say the other main advantage to PR is that there's no possibility of gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is limited to a system that uses a map. Gerrymandering is the crafty drawing of district lines to favor certain kinds of candidates and to create safe seats for one party or the other. Because we're voting in an at-large fashion in the political territory, there's no need for a map. And since there's no need for a map, there's no opportunity for gerrymandering. 
What about the disadvantages, if there are any, of the PR system? Well, of course, there are disadvantages. Everything that is good has some downsides to it. I would say the main disadvantage of the PR system is that what people are voting for is an entity. It's an organization. It's a party. It's not a person. I mean, technically, you are voting for a set of people, those who are listed on the party slate. That information is somewhere. It's not on the ballot, but it's somewhere. But essentially, you're voting for an entity. I, you know, that's a disadvantage really only in a political culture that is used to the candidate-based style of elections like we have in the United States. The other disadvantage is not really in the electoral system itself. It's in what happens in the system of governance that this system of elections feeds into. What is typical in a system of PR is that no single party will win a majority of the seats in the legislature. And so there will not be an automatic governing party. There's not going to be some party that's going to have the majority of seats and so they can enact their legislative agenda. In a two-party system, which is definitely favored by the district-based winner-take-all system, one of the two parties is going to have a majority, unless, of course, it's evenly split and then there's going to be some kind of tie-breaking situation. In a PR system, it's likely, and it happens most of the time in countries that do use it, that the biggest party is going to have maybe 35 or 40 percent of the seats in the legislature. What that means is that the strongest parties are going to have to form coalitions with smaller parties in order to be able to govern, in order to be able to pass legislation. And in systems that also tie a PR system to a parliamentary system, where the chief executive is chosen by the legislature, in order to choose the chief executive, the prime minister, you're going to have to build a coalition. You have to get 50% plus one of the votes in the legislature. So coalition building is absolutely a necessity in that kind of situation. In a legislative system that doesn't have a parliamentary prime minister system associated with it, possibly there's going to be no governing coalition at all and no party is going to be able to push through legislation. Now, that does create a set of incentives for elected legislators to form these kinds of coalitions and to work together to generate enough support across parties to get legislation enacted. And that promotes compromise, it promotes collaboration, it promotes that kind of internal coalition building that we do not have in the United States and that, and that is a characteristic of the district-based winner-take-all system. You don't want to compromise with your political opponents in that kind of system. Your incentive is to win the majority and then use that majority. So you asked me about disadvantages, and I'm not really sure that the lack of a clear majority is a clear disadvantage in the PR system. It's just, it's kind of a feature. It's potentially a disadvantage if none of the parties can form one of these coalitions, or if there's constant sort of realigning of the different coalitions so that the legislation that comes out of the body is erratic. But really, the main disadvantage, I think, is that people are voting for entities, organizations, parties, not for candidates. It's interesting. It seems as though there are far more advantages than disadvantages, yet this system has not spread to the United States. Why do you think that is? Well, the system of proportional representation was not invented until the middle of the 19th century, well into the American experiment. And by that time, our district-based winner-take-all system was pretty well cemented in, not just to our statutes, the laws that govern our elections, and not just to our state constitutions and our federal constitution, but into the consciousness of the American people, into our political culture. It's 
really difficult thing to get a people who, you know, at that point, 70 or 80 years of experience with a democracy to innovate with a new electoral type system. Now, that is now 140, 150 years in the past, and the I would say the answer to why the U.S. hasn't adopted it in that century and a half interval is that our political culture still, and possibly even more strongly, is aligned with the electoral system that we have, and innovation is potentially sort of scary. Really, it's just a historical bad luck for the United States that we didn't have access to this option when the American system was first put together in the late 18th centuries. The delegates to the Constitutional Convention in 1787 didn't know about proportional representation. It hadn't been invented yet. And so they couldn't choose it. They couldn't build it in. And as the states throughout the early 19th century developed their political systems and spread the right to vote from property-owning white men to white men and then to other excluded groups, there was never really a consideration of transforming the fundamental nature of the political system. And it's also, I would say, the case that not only is the American political culture sort of against this type of innovation and against the idea of voting for parties instead of for individuals, there's the fact that for the most part, our political system is structured and regulated by elected officials themselves. When you're an elected official, you're a winner within the system as it exists, And you don't really have an incentive to change the fundamental nature of that system because maybe you're not going to be a winner in that system. Why would you, if you're one of the two parties that, you know, vacillates back and forth between having the majority in the legislature, would you push for a system where you're potentially at best going to have 30 or 35 percent of the seats and you're never really going to be able to get a majority and you're going to have to engage in coalition politics and do all the rigmarole that is involved with that? Well, I think perhaps you've answered what my next question was going to be, but maybe you can elaborate a bit more. What do you think are the biggest obstacles to bringing PR to America? For sure, the vested interests of elected officials in keeping the system that they're already winning under the same is an obstacle. But we do have direct democracy in about half the states, and that means that there is an opportunity to use the citizen initiative ballot measures to get PR introduced into our political system. The obstacle to that, I think, circles back to the political culture, which is that it's unfamiliar to Americans and it seems potentially not only a weird innovation, but strange and scary to a very individualist oriented culture. The idea of voting for a party instead of for an individual person, I think would be difficult for a lot of Americans to stomach. There is really good research on the use of PR throughout the world, it would take, I would say, a lot of education on the direction that research goes. In other words, the the results that that research shows of what a PR system would look like and how it would actually benefit the American system and get rid of some of the problems that a lot of Americans hate about the way that our system works. So the obstacle, I would say, is you know our individualist political culture, our sort of status quo-oriented thinking that our system is already fine, and then the individualist nature of our culture, which would make it challenging for people to decide to vote for a party. None of these are insurmountable obstacles. And so I actually think that it's possible that we're going to start seeing proportional representation proposed and potentially even adopted in the coming decades. Well, thank you for speaking with me today. I've learned an awful lot about the PR system, and I hope our listeners have as well.
the Applied Political Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by the students and professor in PS419, Political Reform, a political science class at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. All content is the opinion of the individual creators and not of the professor, the university, or the political science department. While there are both cultural and structural obstacles to bringing PR to the United States, the avenue of direct democracy seems like the most likely mechanism for introducing PR into the American system. In this next segment, we hear about a proposal to bring PR to the state of Oregon through a ballot measure campaign. There is a blatant disregard for fundamental democratic principles in our electoral landscape today. The premise of people's power in elections is almost forgotten in favor of upholding two dominant parties. This means not only that the people's will is not being accurately represented by their parties, but also that in some places, parties hold far more power than their actual number of constituents. Here in Oregon, we use a plurality system for elections by means of first-past-the-post. This creates a large number of problems, but most importantly to this presentation is the enshrinement of the American two-party system. We can see a clear, if exaggerated, depiction of this by looking at the 2016 presidential race, where, as I recall, the candidates were compared by one late-night talk show host as trying to pick between two excrements. One was smellier than the other, but both were still shit. It's a sentiment I don't completely agree with, but it gets the point across. And this same dynamic plays out at all levels of the American democracy, where voters have to choose between candidates that are often either too far to one political side for them, or that might not be far enough to the other side for their liking. What this means is that voters today choose a candidate they dislike least because there isn't one that they like the most. However, although first-past-the-post is widely the standard for American democracy, it is far from the consensus internationally. There are somewhere around 160 democratic countries, some more democratic than others, and the number varies slightly based on which different international watch group places the cutoff at, but in the ballpark of 160 of those countries are democratic. Around 90 of them use some form of proportional representation to elect their legislative officials. We are proposing a shift in Oregon to become a fairer electoral landscape and to start the process of bringing America in line with the international community's democratic values by making the Oregon House of Representatives elected proportionally. Proportional representation is the solution to a two-party system because rather than a narrowing list of individuals down to two who had the most support from their parties for a final election, entire parties are on the ballot and they will be given house seats equivalent to the percent of total voters that pick that party. This would add a level of math to elections at the state level that hasn't been seen before. We would need to have rules set in place for what happens when percentages don't evenly divide as will almost always happen and a cutoff point so that the legislative body isn't full of 60 representatives all claiming their own individual parties. But with a plethora of examples in the world, these concerns have largely been tested for and solved. As far back as the Oregon Constitution, PR systems were known and widely considered. We know this because written into the Oregon Constitution in 1857 is Article 2, Section 16, that specifically outlines the various acceptable ways citizens could vote for office holders. In section 16, proportional representation is specifically mentioned. We are simply taking our founders up on their offer of fairer, more diverse elections. We are fighting to shift the Oregon House of Representatives away from the standard district-based races between two large parties 
to a proportionally elected race where every citizen can vote for the party which aligns most with their values and interests and and so voters can have disregard of wasted votes and limitations based on geography. To do this, our movement aims to bring PR to a ballot initiative. Because PR is already a constitutionally accepted form of election for public office, we need not make any amendments, only change the, stati- the, the statutes pertaining to elections of the state House of Representatives. A version of this was attempted in 1914, whereby all districts would be abolished as well as the Senate and be replaced by a single body of 60 representatives selected by a mass vote. Each voter had one vote to give and the top 60 candidates would win a seat. It is not hard to believe this measure was shot down. Ballots would be massive. Even just considering a dominant two-party system, voters would need to choose from somewhere in the ballpark of 120 candidates, making this a chore even for the most dedicated informed voters. Rather, our initiative would rely on party lists, which 80% of the world's PR systems use today, so that on election day, voters would simply cast a single vote for one of a handful of parties, not their candidates. Primaries would instead be used to assign those candidates. For House seats, it would be similar to how they are done now. But rather than pick between party candidates from your district, you would cast a vote to move a single candidate up the proposed order of potential representatives that any party offered. The order of names on a party list is important because when the general election votes are in, they simply go down that list from first to last, stopping wherever their percentage of total votes was. This use of primaries is called an open list PR system, and it gives voters some control over the party's actual representation while allowing the general election to not be bogged down by hundreds of potential candidates. To deal with two major hangups of PR systems, decimal seats and minimum percentages, our proposal looks for simple yet robust solutions. A decimal seat happens when the percentage of voters for any given uh, party does not evenly allocate seats i.e. if a party were to get uh, 34% of the vote, that would translate to 20.4 seats in a house of 60 total seats. In this case, the simplest solution and the one that we're putting our backing behind is to give the hanging seat to the party with the highest remainder. The worst case scenario would be an even split, which while highly unlikely is worth consideration. In this event, there are two other solutions called highest average, which favors larger parties, or proportional probability, which is statistically fairer but far more complicated. For the sake of simplicity, our ballot measure will not include either option and leave this decision up to the legislature to decide if the highest remainder ever fails. The second major consideration is what percentage of voters a party has to get in order to qualify for actual participation in the legislature. For for this, there are an abundance of examples to look to globally. And this is called electoral threshold. Germany has a 60-member PR legislative branch with a cutoff of 5%, giving any party that meets this goal at least three members. But they also have additional requirements and a more complex electoral system. Brazil, on the other hand, has a massive legislative body and a threshold that is Uh, that has just this year moved from 1.5% to 2%, making it far too diverse of space for any meaningful merit. 
The exact point that a threshold is set has considerable power over how many parties can effectively compete in elections and will be hotly debated. But for the purpose of our initial measure, we aim for parties to have at least four members, putting the threshold at around 6.5%. Any party that gets under that amount will simply not count.